0: Before I uh, get into reading this morning, got a couple things I wanted to mention to you. Uh, The first is that um, this coming Thursday is my next round of surveillance, and so Jenny and I will travel to Durham on uh, Wednesday night, and uh, Thursday morning about 7 a.m. I'll start having all my tests, and that will, uh, in large part, I should get the majority of the results back that day, so I'm able to stack my appointments um, starting early So that by the end of the day, I should have a a good number of the results. Not all the results, but a good number of them. And so, if you wouldn't mind praying for me, I certainly would appreciate it. Um, It's hard to, sometimes it's hard to function when you don't know what's going on inside of you, you know. Especially when we're talking about, am I carrying death inside of me? It's hard. It's hard. So if you want to pray, I, cer- I certainly would appreciate that. Uh, I'll certainly give you an update next, next Sunday, if not before. Um, should see a good number of you if you're able next Saturday. So happy to talk about it. Um, but anyway, that's coming up this Thursday. So pray for me. Thank you. Next, let's uh, remember what we're doing. So this year we're looking at the story of Scripture. And let's review We're going to do the numbers four, five, and three, all right? So, we got four-part story to Scripture. If you want to understand the Bible, you got to remember there are four parts to it. What are those four parts? Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. That's the storyline of Scripture. Most of us grew up in a two-part story. Most of us grew up thinking about rebellion and redemption, very little about restoration and very little about creation, other than arguing for a particular view of it. Most of us grew up learning the Bible in basically a moralistic bent, thinking that Jesus just adds a little bit to that or makes us have better morals. And reality is the Bible is a four-part story. All four of them fit together. Now what goes and coincides with those four parts are our five statements. Are you, are you, are you learning these yet? This is where we get to see some more meat and muscle on the bones. So can you remember these five? You remember the first one? God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Anybody remember the second one? Yes, evil is real, but it mostly doesn't get the last word. It never gets the last word. It never gets the last word. It's real, but it doesn't get the last word, not in the way that God set up the world. Three, grace. God has always been initiating, pursuing, and saving, always, beginning to end of the story, grace. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. He didn't die and rise from the dead to make you savable, to make salvation possible, to make it probable. He died to save his people from their sins. He is a literal savior, literal savior. He literally saves. And five, everything's moving toward Jesus. Everything in history, everything in the scriptures, everything in your life, everything in my life, everything in current events, everything is moving toward Jesus. That's five. So we've done four, five, now let's back up to three. This is why we have our mission as we do three loves love God love people love place it's what brings everything together when you look at the scriptures this is what God tells us to be about loving him loving others and loving place that's how we live into the four-part story it's how we believe the five statements are true by loving him loving others and loving place Let's jump into Amos this morning. I want to read a collection of verses from chapter 3 and then chapter 8 and then uh, chapter 9. And then uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I would encourage you to keep it open because I'm going to refer to different passages uh, that I won't be reading just now. So listen to this. This is the word of God. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. "'You only have I known of all the families of the earth. "'Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. "'Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? "'Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? "'Does a young lion cry out from his den "'if he has taken nothing? "'Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth "'when there is no trap for it? "'Does a snare spring up from the ground "'when it has taken nothing?' Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, "'Saying, when will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, "'and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, "'that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, "'and deal deceitfully with false balances, "'that we may buy the poor for silver, "'and the needy for a pair of sandals, "'and sell the chaff of the wheat. "'And that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen.' and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you it's true. Lord, as we explore this book today, your word through the prophet Amos, we ask that you would help us to um, maybe think about things differently than we have before. Would Would you remind us that you're always out for our good, that your goodness and mercy will pursue us all the days of our lives? Would you convince us even more that this book is just part of your story that brings us to Christ that we would truly hear good news this morning, that we wouldn't be here just because we wanna learn some new techniques or methods or tricks on how to live or tricks or spiritual lessons to make our lives better. Lord, would you transform us? Would you change us? Would you help us to live into the reality of what you give us in the four-part story? We pray this for your glory, amen. So this morning I wanna introduce you to a new old friend. His name is Amos. Amos lived roughly the year 760, 750 BC, which means that he was probably contemporaries with Isaiah, probably contemporaries with Jeremiah, probably contemporaries possibly even with Jonah. So this was a guy who was from the southern kingdom of God's people and God called him to be a prophet. And remember what a prophet is. A prophet represents God to the people. A priest represents the people to God. So Amos was called to be a prophet, which means he was supposed to declare God's word to people. He was supposed to declare God's thoughts on reality. He was supposed to explain all that's going on in light of who God is. And let me tell you, this was a big jump for Amos because by trade, he was a farmer. He farmed figs and sheep and other things, which meant this guy really understood hard work. He understood dependence. I don't know if any of you farmed in a while, but farming hasn't changed in some ways over the years. In other ways, it's changed a lot, but farming is inherently dependent on all kinds of things that are absolutely out of the farmer's control. So in that sense, Amos really understood what it meant to be a prophet because he was just meant to take the words of God and declare it. He knew hard work. He knew what it was like to be dependent, to be dependent. And he went to a people that didn't necessarily even like him. Remember, he was from the southern part. He had to go to the northern kingdom. He had to go and speak to the northern kingdom when they had been at odds and there was division. If you look in chapter seven around verse 10 and following, what you'll find is that when he arrives in Bethel, the capital city of the northern kingdom, uh, there was a prophet there named Am- Amaziah. And Amaziah looked at Amos and he was like, we don't need you here. You just take whoever you are and whatever you're saying and just head on home. Go back south. We don't want anything to do with you. So I don't know about you, but if you have ever had a job in which you had to go and talk to someone and share with them uh, in a way news that had, the person you had to talk to need to be confronted with some news and they didn't want anything to do with you, and they told you to get out and don't let the door hit you or maybe let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. That's what Amos was dealing with. Amos was told, go home. And yet Amos continued to prophesy. And then all that leads to this amazing end of the book that I read in chapter 9, 11 and following, which we'll come back to, where ultimately he gets to proclaim this incredible restoration where you got mountains that are just full of wine and, and people are celebrating and eating and laughing and, and celebrating together. Well, that's kind of <clears throat> that's kind of introduction to Amos. So let's get into the story and find a little more detail about this. So if you look in chapter one, what you'll find is that Amos goes to the northern kingdom, and this is his tactic. This is his method. This is what he does. If you look at chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 5, you're going to find this. Amaziah goes to the northern kingdom. Now think about how clever this is. He goes to the northern kingdom and he starts talking about God's judgment on nations that are around them. Think about that. He mentions Gaza. He mentions um, other places in the south, and the north, and the northeast, and the northwest, all around the northern kingdom, but not the northern kingdom. He says, look, God's going to bring judgment on these other nations for the way that they are living. And if you think about this, Amos knows that if he goes to the northern kingdom, they're not going to want to receive him, and they ultimately don't. I already told you that story in chapter 7. But he goes to address the reality of who God is and that God is not okay with how people are living. And by addressing the northern kingdom and talking about everyone around them, you know that people are receiving his message and thinking, yeah, you're right, Hamas. These people are losers. We can't stand the people down in Gaza. We can't stand the people to the north. It's so good to know that our God is on our side and that he can't stand the nations around us either. Thank you, Amos. And if you look in chapter two, verse four and five, you'll find that Amos even ramps this up and addresses the southern kingdom, which you know there was conflict between the north and the south. And so they didn't want anything to do with the south. And so then they were, his audience was really excited. But For those who heard the message in chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 2 verse 5 and were thinking to themselves, hmm, well if God is saying that about all these other nations, what does that mean for us? In other words, there were some in the audience who weren't quite so self-absorbed. Who we weren't just thinking to themselves, we completely agree, Amos, all those, other, all those other places, all those other people are lost. But we're doing pretty good, aren't we? No doubt there were some we thought to themselves. So if God is addressing everyone around us, maybe that makes us the bullseye. <laughs> so then in chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 9, verse 10, God deals with his people, He deals with his people, and this is what he says. He says, if you look in chapter 6, verse 3 and following, what you'll find is that it was actually a tremendously prosperous time for God's people. They were... They were celebrating all the time. They were writing songs like David. May enough time to make instruments like David. If you go back and read chapter 6, 3 through 5 and 6, you'll find that God says, yep, y'all are sleeping just fine. You're celebrating all the time. You think everything is great. You're living in affluence. You're living a prosperous life. But yet, God says, you're absolutely bankrupt. Matter of fact, you're not only living in an unjust society, you're promoting injustice itself. Let me read you a sampling so you know, because God says this through Amos to his people over and over and over in the chapters. So it's a time of great prosperity. It's a time where a lot of things look really good, but yet the reality is they're not good at all. Listen to this. From chapter 2, verse 6. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, those who are wealthy deal with those who are wealthy, and those who don't have anything, man, they just treat them like no, they're not worth more than a flip flop. Chapter 5. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from them, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Get it? You're doing great. You're prosperous, but you take a bribe. You're willing to make deals if it advances your prosperity. And those that are really needy, that are hanging out at the gate, that don't have what they need for every day, don't give a rip about them. Just concerned about making sure that you have and you relate to people that have and so that when you relate to people that have, it hopes it increases what you have. Chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar who say, have we not by our own strength captured carneum for ourselves? See what God is saying? There's lots of prosperity but yet you've turned justice into poison and you are bragging about everything that you have as if you did it yourself. Listen to this indictment in chapter eight, verse four and five. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale. Do you see what God's saying? He's saying you're gathered for worship But all you're thinking about is, when will the Sabbath be over? Because i got to get back to making money. So yeah, you're gathered to worship me, and yeah, you're here to praise me, but what's going on in your mind and your heart is, I can't wait to make more money. When can we get done with this? How How can we get back to being prosperous and being concerned about our prosperity? You see, God is saying, you're prosperous, but yet you're living in rabid injustice and you're promoting injustice. And I'm not okay with that, God says. See, that's what the story says. Everything outwardly looked good, but the point of all this is that God is telling his people, he's telling us, you've lost your way. That's the whole point of this book. You've lost your way. And we hear this and think, oh, how are we gonna find our way back? Well, that's the story in very brief fashion. That's the story of Amos. I hope you'll go read it. So what? What in the world does this mean for us? What in this world, what does this mean for me today? What does this mean right now? What does this mean in my life tomorrow? What does it mean for my life this afternoon? I got three things, three questions. The first one is this, would you know injustice if it was staring you in the face? Would you know it? Would you know injustice if it was staring you in the face? I wanna tell you how I've grown. I used to think of justice as just making sure that the appropriate consequences were laid out. I used to think of justice as making sure that the consequences fit the wrong. That's how I used to think about justice. But I've learned, and I'm still learning. The Bible actually has a very different way of thinking about justice. Justice involves consequences, But in the Bible, justice involves not only consequences, it also involves protection, and it also involves care. So that if we want to understand justice, we can't just think about consequences of people's actions. It involves that. But in the Bible, justice involves protection, and it involves care. This is highlighted, uh, had to pick one verse to try to illustrate this, although there are probably hundreds, but at least dozens. But there's a, a verse in the book of Job in which this is what is said in Job 39. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. You get it? Justice is something we wear Justice is something that we are. We are supposed to be a just people. That no matter what situation we're in, no matter what's happening, we are functioning in a way that is just, in a way that is justly reflecting the very character of God. So it can't just be consequences. It also has to involve protection, and it has to involve care, so that to be a just person means that, yes, there are consequences for decisions that are made, and that I am bent toward protecting, and I am bent toward caring for people, no matter who they are, no matter what's happened. That's what it means to be just. We're supposed to wear it so that all can see on display that we are just people reflecting the justice of God because God is intrinsically just. It's part of his being. You see, this is the difference. See if you can follow this. This is why this is so profound. This is why it really rocked my world because I started understanding that from God's perspective and in God's economy, justice precedes law. Justice precedes law. Laws are supposed to flow out of what is just. And we live in a day and age, and we live in a culture, and we live in a time in which justice follows the law. So that we are encouraged to find loopholes and things like that. Because if we can find loopholes, then it is just. We're not in trouble. We can get out of it. Justice is defined as something after law. But the way that God is over the world is not that way. It's the opposite. You see, God is just and he created us in in his image as just people who are supposed to live for the life of the world which meant there were consequences for our decisions, which meant that we cared to protect one another and the world that we're living in, and it meant that we were supposed to care about God's creation and other people, everything that God's made. That's the way we were made. So justice comes first, and then the laws of God flow out of that view of justice. So the laws of God that were originally written on our hearts at creation actually become codified in the Ten Commandments. But you see, we were created with those laws inherently because we were made in the image of God. So that to image God meant that we were a just people who cared about right and wrong, who understood consequences, and who were committed to protection and who were committed to care. You see, what we have here is that God is indicting his people because they devalue other people. They mistreat justice. They treat it like poison. They have poisoned the whole thing. They extort. They're committed to not only being prosperous, but trying to be more prosperous for the sake of being selfishly prosperous, not to be prosperous for the good of others. But to be prosperous, to be prosperous. God doesn't despise those who have an enormous amount of riches. He doesn't despise those who have resources. What God is saying is that you're prosperous, but it is for yourself. And in my world, in the way I've set up the world, you're to be prosperous for the good of others. You're to be prosperous for the good of all. You see, When God starts going through these things that we read in chapter two and in chapter four and five and six, He's trying to get at the fact that we are contributing to the injustice in the world. He's trying to get us to own that and accept that responsibility, living as if we're just living for self. You see, in the Bible, and what we see illustrated here in particular is that poverty is not always because of bad decisions that people make. Poverty can come because of calamities and catastrophes that have occurred, and also comes because there are broken systems, like what God is talking about with His people. So that if we're going to be a just people, we need to wear it. We need to live it out. We need to recognize that there are needy people who have made bad decisions, and guess what? That can be true, but it can also be true that there could have been a catastrophe in their life, and they need help and protection and care. And it could be that they're stuck in a profoundly broken system that we are a part of. Because you know what happens when sinners get together, right? They start making plans of how to do things. And they come up with systems, and they come up with processes by which to do things. And when sinners do that, they make faulty systems. No surprise. And God is saying, look, would you know injustice if it was staring you in the face? Because look around. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. How are we going to find our way? Well, that leads us to the second, so what? Would you know it if injustice is staring you in the face? Second question, would you know it if love was staring you in the face? We read chapter three to start off because several times in the book of Amos, Amos presents God as a roaring lion. That God is roaring out. I need you to understand that sometimes love roars. And it's true love, it's real love. Sometimes love roars. God is calling out his people and it is because he loves them. He loves them so he won't let them stay where they are without understanding where they are. God loves his people and so he roars at them. Don't you see the injustice? Don't you realize your participation in it? I'm doing this. God is yelling, he is roaring at us because he loves us. What's so hard for us to receive that is? could be a number of things. To reiterate some of the things we've learned from other prophets. Cheap love's everywhere. You know that, right? On the one hand, cheap love is uh, unqualified affirmation, which means you just have to Affirm, 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 and never, ever, ever speak into that. Love's just unqualified affirmation. That's what our culture said is love. That's the air we breathe. That's what we contribute to all the time, that love is unqualified affirmation. And that is relationships in which you and I are expected to absorb the relational cost of it without truth. And God's saying, no, that's not love at all. That's cheap love at best. And the other form of cheap love that we talked about was a love that isn't willing to absorb the personal relational cost of the relationship, but is super willing to be truthful. Which means I speak the truth all the time. I'm not willing to absorb anything that this relationship might cost me and I'm just gonna be able, I just want to say the truth and eject if I need to. That's also cheap love. Because true love is willing to absorb the cost and tell the truth. Does that sound like Jesus who is willing to absorb the cost of what it took? to pay for our sin, he was willing to absorb that cost and he's willing to tell us the truth and be the truth? You see, we live in a culture that's all messed up about love. And it's not just that there's cheap love. There's other things too. There's still some in our culture who uh, just don't trust love at all, just don't even know if it's a thing, if it's real. And there's still others in our culture that think that love is a competition. Bachelor, need I go on? Love's not a competition. And there are others who think that if I just have the love that I want, it will save me. Then it'll be my redemption. If I can just find that romantic relationship, that kind of love, that will be all that I need. There's so, still some, a few that think that. And God is saying, no, no. None of those will work. True love is a love that is willing to absorb the cost of the relationship. And true love is the love that is willing to speak truth. That's real love. And that's what God is exemplifying for us in the book of Amos. By roaring. By calling us out. By saying, do you hear me? Because you see the The purpose of this, the purpose of this love, the reason why God calls us out on injustice and does it lovingly, the whole purpose of that is found at the end of chapter nine of restoration. Listen to some of this. I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by that name. I understand if you don't intuitively get all of that, just hang in there. Do you get the poetic language that follows this? The plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. All the, I will restore all the fortunes of my people. It will rebuild the cities, on and on. God is talking about something cosmic in which his people will be completely restored, and there'll be more on that in a minute. But this is where the book ends. God calls out his people because God's plan is to ultimately restore everything. Do you see So how in the world can we look down on other people and extort things from them and not care for the needy when God has a plan to gather people together? How can we tear down our cities being unjust and unjust in the way we live when God wants truth to reign? How in the world can we just exclusively think about prosperity and resources and riches just to serve ourselves. when God's given us everything and invited us to be part of his mission. Do you see how that doesn't work? That's why even when God is calling out his people, he's saying, look, the whole purpose is that one day all things will be restored and renewed. Even in calling out our injustice, He's doing it in a loving way because he is purposed to restore all things. So, again, that leaves us with a question. If this whole book is about how I've lost my way, how am I gonna get back? That leads to the third question. Do you hunger for the truth? If you look in chapter eight, What you'll find in verse 11 and following is that God tells his people that there is going to come a time in which they will try to seek the word of the Lord and they won't find it. That's what it says at the end of verse 12. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord but they shall not find it. God says the days are coming in which people won't be able to find the truth. And you know what happens when we don't live in accordance with the truth? We live in accordance with the lie. The lie that we can be self-made. The lie that we can define reality for ourselves. The lie that we can define what's right and wrong for ourselves. But it's not just that we can follow the lie. It's that we can come maybe halfway and believe counterfeit truths. Counterfeit truths are much more sinister they're darker. They come across as better versions, clearer-ish, closer-ish to the truth. The counterfeits are when we look at the Bible as an instruction manual, a code book. If I can just crack the code, I'll know the events, I'll know what's happening. If I can just get the principles and live by the principles, I can work this algorithm and make it happen, counterfeit. Those are counterfeit truths. Not the truth, not the truth of God's word. The Bible is not a formula. The Bible and God's word is food. Jeremiah says in chapter 15, your word came to me and it was like food and I ate it. Friends, again, the Bible is not a formula. It's food, it's meant to be digested, it's where you get strength and power and energy. Just like the food that you'll eat today will provide your body with energy. God's word is spiritual energy that transforms your life. It means that we need to beware of the counterfeits and we need to take God's word in like it is in truth, food. Now, if you can hang in there with me, I'm almost done. Hang in there. I'm going to try to pull this off. Probably are not going to make it, I'm probably going to fail spectacularly, but I'm going to try. But I'm going to try to at least give you the bullet points so you can, can, if you desire, read this more closely. I want to try to illustrate everything that I've been talking about today through this one story found in Acts chapter 15. In the first century, God's church was exploding and spreading everywhere. And as it was spreading and going, there arose problems in the church. And it just so happened that because there were problems in the church, there happened to be times in which the church had to get together to figure out what to do with those problems. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. And one of the challenges that was in the early church is not just that people were teaching false things, it's that people were trying to understand how in the world do we live together? How in the world can these new people come in that have different backgrounds and different stories? How in the world can we live together and make this happen? What are we going to do? And at one of these big church meetings that's recorded for us in Acts 15, where a bunch of churches come together to meet. They bring up this issue. And they start figuring out what are we gonna do? And one of the guys that speaks up, looks at the situation, and they go to the source of truth, which you might guess is the Bible. And when they go to the Bible, they're looking at the circumstances and the challenges that are going on, and they go to Amos chapter nine. How in the world are we gonna to relate to people? How can we get along? And James says, oh, God prophesied about this a long time ago, and he doesn't even say Amos, he just quotes it, but we know it's the prophet Amos, in which God says, oh, here's what I'm gonna do. That, that uh, broken down tent of David that's mentioned in chapter nine, the booth of David that has fallen, is talking about the coming of the Davidic line, the king from David's line, that would be Jesus. Because I've made promises, God's saying, because i made promises to Abraham that from him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That echoes Genesis 1 and 2. That I made to David that a king would come from him that would never ever leave his throne. I'm raising up that king from David's line. And when he comes, it means that he's going to restore. It means that he's going to restore the fortunes to my people. It means that he is going to bring back health. It means that he's going to bring back justice. It means that a day is coming in which justice will flow down from the mountains like water. In Acts 15, they had a problem and they decided to look to the scripture for the answer and they found Amos and they looked at the scripture through the lens of Jesus and his death and resurrection. In other words, they took the word of God and didn't look at it as a formula, they looked at it as food. They took the word of God and said, okay, Lord, I need you to interpret and under- make sense of all these circumstances that are going on. Whatever's happening in the world, let me see it through the lens of the coming of Jesus. Let me see it through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me look at all of reality through the lens of Jesus. That's exactly what they did in Acts 15. In other words, what we have is that when the Word of God becomes our food and we use the Word of God to live into this four-part reality, it means that we have a grid to understand and relate to Him and to people and to others. It means we have a grid to process the challenges and the difficult circumstances that we have. It means... God is telling us that we have lost our way through the book of Amos, that we're unjust people who promote injustice, that we don't like being called out, we prefer unqualified affirmation among other things. It means that we're not at times paying too much attention to the truth. And sometimes when we do, we just want to use it as a formula to get something that we want And how in the world are we going to find our way back? Well, you see, our injustice and our desire to create our own reality and our desire to create our own truth is exactly where Jesus meets us. Because it's Jesus who takes the justice of God for us. It's where we met Jesus that we understand he received all that we deserve. He absorbed the justice of God that we would be clothed with righteousness and justice so that we might live as if we understand, oh, we are those that are spiritually poor. We are the ones who are needy. We are the ones who have been oppressed by our own sin and that Jesus has come to make us free. It's in Jesus that we see the love of God that he called us out, that we might see ourselves the way God does and see others the way God does. It's there that we meet Jesus in truth because it's the truth that outduels all the lies and the counterfeits. It's the truth that makes sense of reality and brings us into the four part story that culminates in restoration. And friends, that's what brings us to the table. It's here that we see justice and love and truth together.